Hello, friends. Welcome to episode 8 of Ents and Sensibility, the podcast for everyone who loves bold, witty women, awkward, handsome men, and dragons. Today, we're going to do something a little different, but I hope you enjoy it. Today, I have a special guest. I'm talking with Amanda Ray Prescott, a cosplayer, fellow nerd, and a contributor for Den of Geeks, where she covers period dramas like Sanditon and Briggerton, sci-fi and fantasy, such as Doctor Who, and so much more. A few weeks ago, I put a call out on Twitter to discuss racism within the Jane Austen community, and Amanda Ray was kind enough to reach out, and we had a long conversation that went on far longer than either of us expected our Zoom call to last. So today's episode does have a discussion of chapter eight of Sense and Sensibility, but before that, you'll hear my conversation with Amanda Ray. Now I've edited this conversation down for the podcast, but you'll be able to listen to the entire thing on entsandsensibility.com. So here is my conversation with Amanda Ray Prescott, and I'll be back to begin our discussion on chapter eight afterwards. For the first time on Ensign Sensibility, we actually have a guest today. This is Amanda Ray Prescott, um, and I will let you introduce yourself, Amanda. Tell me, Amanda Ray, I'm sorry, tell the listeners a little bit about yourself, what you do, and, and your interest in Jane Austen. Cool. Uh, my name is Amanda Ray Prescott. I am a freelance journalist for Den of Geek uh, Doctor Who magazine. I also recently started working with GBH in Boston. That's the, their previous affiliate for news, reviews, and things as a freelancer. So my interests are all over the place in terms of television. Like, I, I mean, I like not just Austin-based media. I also like all pure dramas. I love watching even the mysteries and contemporary shows out of the UK. So it's a lot of my, I'm a little bit of a grab bag. But in terms of Austin, I, my role in was the TV and movie adaptations. And then I'm starting to read, I'm starting to read the novels or reread them, depending which one we're talking about here. I actually finished Persuasion a couple days ago for the first time, which is kind of cool. Because I remember watching the adaptations, you know, years ago, back when they were released, and then now. Yes, yeah, so slowly but surely, my main interest in Austin is sort of through the various adaptations over the years. And then also, I like cos- I like, I like historical costuming and cosplay, so that's also another way in for me. Like, I am very visual in that sense. I love, and I love, like, what I love, like, figuring out, hey, I can see that thing on the screen. I also have a huge interest in the community in terms of social, in terms of social media and, and 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 diversity issues because as a woman of color, I noticing there's so much stuff that needs to be worked on, and as somebody who's tried to run their own spaces in the fandom and constantly seeing a lot of gatekeeping, a lot of undercover racism, if not like over racism in the community, and I've and I've gone through quite of couple negative experiences in the Austin world space so a lot of my work online especially on my Twitter account is basically exposing people who are 
not just talk about stuff I like, but a lot of times I'm talking about the stuff I don't like in fandom, and a lot of it is white people trying to use their privilege to shout down people, to shout down people of color, to shout down LGBTQ folks, all that stuff. That's sort of a lot of. That's I think a lot when people first hear my name in fandom, it's probably what they're like. Yeah, that girls always talk about how terrible people are in fandom. Like, yeah, I have to because who? There are other people talking about it, but I feel like some because some people are affiliated with Jasmine or other official organizations, there's not as much they can say online. I'm not beholden. I'm not member of Jasmine or anything, so I'm not beholden to them. The I'm also not beholden to studios and networks and stuff like that too. So I'm like, I don't. If I see you know stuff that's going on elsewhere, I can totally comment on it because they're not really paying me. So that's or like I'm not again. I'm not. I don't belong to an organization, so like I won't get censured for calling anybody out. I unpacked a lot there. Um, <laughs> Sorry, I was no. Alive. That's that's awesome. This is exactly why I. I was so excited when when I, I just put that out on Twitter. Hey, does anyone want to talk about this topic with me? And you you said absolutely, and I went through your Twitter. I'm like, oh yes, this is perfect. She is perfect for this. So we have a lot of lot to unpack. Uh, okay. I live in Rhode Island. I used to live in Mass. I know what GBH is. Not everyone does, but that's the local PBS station at, in Boston. Um, I am insanely jealous because that is an awesome job. I run it, and mind you, I'm I'm just a freelancer, so I'm not, like, in their offices and stuff. Like, I just, you know, they send me, they're like, hey, want to write about this stuff? And then I'm like, sure. So, ironically, I'm from Brooklyn, so I'm not sure how that happens (laughs) in life. (laughs) I'm from Brooklyn writing for our theoretical enemies in sports, at least, to Boston. No, I know the folks who work at 13 here, and this is that, yeah, those yeah. positions are probably already filled. So, yeah, they have their, I'm um, mostly right on their blog, because if you look up anything related to um, the Long Song in particular, I wrote one article on wow. all creatures great and small and race as well. So that's kind of, I'm kind of that, I'm kind of their go-to person on those topics, because I do a lot of dives on on my Twitter account. And in my writing on how these fandoms are seen, especially the race angle, because a lot of times, not right. when people were reviewing these I mean, British TV shows, the they're not going to think about that because they're white. I, like, it's like, I'm, I'm Caribbean American, so I can, yeah, and I know the black history behind a lot of the UK stuff. I mean, not, there's not, there's some, some shows will stop me on terms of history, but in most of the stuff that's coming out recently, I am familiar with, like, the background information that people probably miss. So yeah, that's kind of what I do as well. That's another sideline of mine. So you talked about um, calling out white people who are who are talking trash about people of color portraying characters in the uh, on TV or even fans who are people of color. Um, what are some of the things that you see? Some of these things that aren't so a great example. And unfortunately, I hate to use this as a use these things as examples, but I'm going to start with a not so Austin related example of Bridgerton that just passed on Netflix. I 
my background version is that I received the Netflix screeners because I work with Dana Geek as a freelancer. I received them an entire month and change for reels. So pretty much when I watched Bridgerton, it was pretty much only the people in the industry at that point have seen it. And I already knew going in, it was going to be controversial in Austin's faces because the show was not attempting to portray the reason the way Austin would. The show right. is based on a contemporary historical romance series they did inclusively cast, but they did not always... Some of the characters of color, unfortunately, they're portraying things that can be interpreted as stereotypes because of the fact that they these, these plots originally have no white characters in the books. So yeah, I, I do... I know people are... I'm well aware of a lot of the Bridgerton-related critiques because I've written some of them for Denny Geek. But in terms of fandom, what annoyed the heck out of me in these Austin groups is that the first thing people were saying were, oh, the costumes are inaccurate. They were not supposed to be Austin-inspired costumes. Oh, why are, why is That's the I queen hear a lot. black yeah. or biracial? This is a problem. The fact that that is what people are, or even worse, they are saying Bridgerton is too woke. Woke is a term that was originally used by african-americans to describe people who fought for you know racial equality and things and now it's an insult word or calling things politically correct there is a lot of uh, people who always look for slurs in fandom but a lot of times they're not going to say use slurs they're going to use things such as historical accuracy which is a very it's a very broad term at the same time it's often applied to efforts to increase racial diversity a lot of times in fandom and even in, in adaptations or on you know in especially or authors who are writing austin inspired things that term it's never used it is used to talk about you know people not getting dates and figures right in other adaptations but those same people are silent when there's historical errors about white characters, about white bi biographical characters, or even white fictional characters. They're 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 more upset by somebody playing Asian who is an Asian Asian actor in, in the Regency than you know, for example, then something like that's completely has nothing to do with race. But all of a sudden, are like those same people who are like fluky racist are like. Oh no, historical accuracy. But here's the thing: like many historians of this era have figured out that they that black people existed. Other groups, <laughs> Indian people exist in this era. Uh, all the folks in South Asia existed in this era in England, and so so it's like in in other and even East Asia, it's like this is ridiculous. Why are you guys talking about this? Because also too, like this is a part of the, this is history part in history where England was a colonial power. So these people from their colonies are coming back and forth. It wasn't necessarily they were coming as slaves. Some were coming as servants, domestic servants otherwise, but then you have a lot of people who are just working there, trading, even their political leaders. It's, a, it's kind of a ridiculous notion. And the reason why people think this way is because they were taught inaccurate history. 
And this is why this comes up time and time again in these fandoms, because for every person who was read, for example, many of the folks who were working on this, on on these, you know, on documenting the actual what happened in the era, you have these people who've been reading inaccurate history for 20, 30 plus years. They've even gone to school and learned inaccurate history. And that, so all of a sudden you give them an article written by, say, David Olusuga or some other professors are just like, what the heck is this? I didn't, that's not what I learned. That has to be wrong. I'm like, wait, no, they're using the same primary sources or even new ones that right. were found, but all of a sudden it's a problem. So yeah, Bridgerton was one of, and that a lot of that Bridgerton debate happened inside Austin groups because of course it's, was it advertises Regency romance, but of course people are not realizing there's a difference between Regency romance and Austin inspired works. That's two different things. One is Regency according to modern romance writers, and the other is attempting to recreate elements of Austin's world, even if they're going to have a, oh, their own original ideas on plots. The other problem, I think the bigger one, honestly, in terms of specifically Austin's pieces, yeah. is second issue, you have the what happens when there's a new adaptation and you see the casting go out, you see the generic PR photo and the generic, um, you know, the, the photo they grab from like, you know, getting images of the, of the, of the actor. It's not even what they were, would look like in costume. Cause the thing's not going to be filmed for six months and then reacting inevitably because there's, you know, people called being cast in white roles. Like for example, the new persuasion adaptation, there was a lot of nasty comments about Joel Fry not just that he's wrong for the role, but a lot of things was like, he's too young. He's 31 years old. You're only saying he's too young because he has, he clearly has some African ancestry in him and he's not going to look like a white person in his 30s. So when they say he's too young, that's code for I don't recognize what he looks like according to white beauty standards. So things like that, there's another example. It's like they say something, but what they're really saying is this person does not, or this fact, or this does not fit what I've been taught as somebody who's white. That's what I live with it. It's a lot of coded language a lot of times. But the worst incident of all for this, it was, has to be the sand that's in Pineapple Saga, or Pineapple Gate, as I called it. Uh, I was going to ask you about that. Because I thought the metaphor within the the scene was really interesting. Uh, you have this beautiful pineapple that everyone's showing up, but inside it's rotten and you know full of worms and stuff. So, but tell me a little bit about um, the the fallout from that. So, so rewind people back because now we're going a bit back in time to. The middle of 20... That was late last year? No, this actually started 2019. We're talking about the fall of 2019. 2019. um, Summer to fall. Because what happens a lot of times with Jane Austen fandom is that the UK airing or premiere something, there's a whole conversation going on. And then when it comes to America, there's essentially a completely different conversation. But because of copyright law and because of social media has kind of broken down copyright law to a lot of extent. A lot of people are, I'm actually one of these people, 
I like to watch stuff online from the UK before it comes to America because a lot of times I'm getting I can get context that people are missing. I read interviews. I'm not afraid of spoilers, even though, you know, some of the U.S. networks may frown on that practice. But in terms of, for Sanderson, I wanted to see what was going on in the U.K. because because of Georgina. Georgiana. Sorry, not Georgina. Georgiana. Georgiana Lamb. And I wanted to see what they did with her character because in the fragment, she's only described as as one quarter African descent. So I was like, okay, let's see what they do with the show. And the fandom really misinterpreted that whole scene. They were like, many people realized that, okay, lady, um, uh, you know, she would, this whole thing was mean and this was negative. But then they turned that scene into a scene of celebration. And I'm like... Uh, Lady Denim right. was terrible to and Georgiana. Was. And then you're like, oh, we're going to make this the symbol of our fandom because we saw one random cast swag giveaway bag that had it on there. But that was not for public consumption. That's where they decided to use the pineapple emoji to symbolize the show. That was not for, that was not in any of the official tweets or social media messages. The only thing that was in there at the time was, you know, the hashtag for the show, Sanderson or Sanderson PBS, if you're talking about Masterpiece. Or that was the US hashtag. That was, they just, people came up with that and invented it in in the Sanderson fan groups and just ran with it. And then, of course, every time somebody tried to tell them this is something a little off, they're like, oh, whatever, you know, you're just trying to, you know, interrupt the fandom, whatever, we're going to do what we want. And I'm like, okay, fine. I tried one time uh, in before the U.S. aired Sanderson. I was like, okay, fine. Y'all are just going to do whatever you want. Corollary to that is once people found out Sanderson was canceled in the U.K., they launched a massive social media uprate, outroar, an upra- outrage, an uproar to be like, we need to get the show renewed. So what did they do? They attacked the U.S. hashtags where people have not seen the show yet with renew the show. It's got canceled. And I'm like, for me, I'm like, first of all, you're leaking spoilers on the hashtag. People haven't seen it yet. You're causing disruption, but they didn't care. So, so, you know, whatever. When the U.S. airing of Samson happened, they were at one point, they were like, oh, Americans are going to not going to stand a show. And the next second, they were like, oh, wait, if it does well in the United States, then maybe they can the show can get renewed. So then they realize they have to engage the American folks. So now Americans are watching the show. They're talking the hashtag. They're using the pineapple emojis. And we're all like, why? Who? Like, who are you all? Because here's the note. Many of these people were not Americans. So white European people, white rich people have decided to do this. And those had the U.S hashtags that PBS created are like have up until that point have been pretty safe spaces for people of color. Like I've been on there since the Downton Abbey days and I know most there's a couple of people I've had issues with but there's even the people I've muted or blocked I mean we're not racist we're just like a lot of personality conflicts but I know who most of these people are all of a sudden you see the pineapple emojis invading space and I'm like oh no 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 now you're on my turf. Not my turf as in I own it but I'm like I used to feel safe in the space and now you're spreading your like racism everywhere. So I started to, I confronted these people. I was like, 
you came up with this emoji as a symbol of fandom. You didn't ask how people would feel. I'm a Caribbean American woman. Like, some of my, my ancestors could very well be like Georgiana, or they could easily be somebody who was enslaved. I, again, I don't know for sure, but it's yeah a problem. Like, this is, I know the history behind this. You are trying to glorify a scene riddled of microaggressions and actual racism as something nice. This is no go. And I had days and weeks of people going back for these people. And a lot of it was white people deciding something they did not to listen. And even though I proposed alternative emojis, because all the sea, beach, top hat emojis, all that was there already on social media. Couldn't use it. Nope. They had to double, triple down. They even had to... Oh. People wrote... I After I, like, you know, people... They sent the goons after me, essentially, like... By the time the Daily Beast interviewed me, that was several, almost a month of sustained harassment at that point. I mean, the time's a little blurry. But now we're talking about like January, February 2020. So right before coronavirus hit, that's sort of what I was dealing with. At the same time, of course, I had other stuff to worry about as well. Because at that point, I was also starting to cover Outlander Season 5 for Den Geek for the first time. And that was... It's like I'm starting a new freelance gig and these people are in. I'm like, okay, are it's like, thankfully my editor was very good about like, like please ignore my Twitter page. Sorry, they're racist after me. Just, just ignore them. Like I'm going to get the work done, but it's like, this is kind of distracting looking back on it. And just the failure to understand stuff. And also too, it's like, if you're going to come up with a system symbol, of the fandom, why are you deciding that before consulting other people? It's simply people of color about it. It's like they, the other thing annoyed me too, is that there were people in that space. They're like, well, I'm, I'm not black, but I'm a person of color. I thought it was fine. I'm like, but your family history may not be like my family history. Yeah, like, I'm sorry, if you are, you know, if you are of Asian descent or something else, it's, that's not your decision. Just because you are, have created yourself right. to be a fandom authority because you run a popular Twitter page does not mean, or a Facebook page does not mean people have to agree with you. Because that's the key. Like, none of these people were members of Jazz. None of these people were, you know, or anything else. They were not American. They were not. And people wonder, why are we talking about European people? The thing is, social media is made fandom global. And what happens over there comes over here. And what, and also too, there have been people who have seen the stuff on social media and then have accused in-person Jane Austen groups of being aligned with their pineapple people. For example, there was a, um, a costuming group in England they use the pineapple as a symbol, and all of a sudden people are like, oh, are you those Sanderson racists? They were not affiliated, but that's what happened. They were attacked on Instagram or, you know, called out because they that group was interviewed by British press for Bridgerton, and that's what happened. I mean, it I mean, granted, some people may argue that group probably shouldn't be using pineapples either, but that's not my my concern was. In the context of Sanders and Phantom, yeah. it was clearly shown to be a racist scene. The cast have crew have talked about it in in the interviews. 
the only reason why they're they were dying on a hill suppose it's pretty much as you speak is because they made a decision they were told people didn't like it and they decided to just not back down i think i wrote an essay about it for a academic publication call uh so there's a lot there's about 20 something pages of analysis on what i've noticed but to boil down to 20 something odd pages a lot of what happened boiled down to a people arguing based on facts that were not facts that was whitewashed history because yes there is an argument can be made that it does mean a symbol of wealth it does mean people are you know it does mean something nice and pretty, but the thing is, in the context of the show, this is, you're getting the exact opposite thing. It's a, it's exactly. A and the thing on, is, the show never answered the question of why Georgiana was being, what was going on with her that she couldn't control her own inheritance. There's something shady there. I mean, the show glorifies Sydney for helping her escape Otis, and, but that's, kind of questionable why is he in charge of her like the excuse and then of course whenever she right. tried to defend herself it was oh she was rude and she was mean no no no. that's a woman suffering attacks on her own dignity and her own identity like this is the way people are interpreting these plots is in itself problematic and whenever you talk to people about that they're just ignore it or they're like, no, 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 the more important thing about Sanditon is that, oh, the white people don't have their happy ending. I'm like, well, what about Georgiana? This show broke up Otis and her. What happens to her? Do you guys not care? Or they claim to care, but it's like, oh, they're like, oh, no, no, that's the, they're not, she's not the main character. I'm like, that's a poor excuse. Exactly. And, and Austin is everybody gets a happy ending, not just the one main character. They usually end up with several people having a happy ending, especially someone who suffers as much as Georgiana suffers. And she does. It's so horrible the way she's treated. How can I, as a white, um, I don't want to say a woman because I, I don't identify as a woman, white mm, person, um, call people out if I see something on Twitter on Facebook that is really just gross or isn't even gross it's just that subtle underhanded thing how do I call them out you know without resorting to the foul language that as a mouthful <laughs> I really want yeah it's tough I, I tend to tell people depending on what the person's saying Something as simple as, why did you use, sorry, if people are using terms that are dodgy or like saying, it's like, what do you mean by that term? Or who are you referring to when you say these people? Or stuff like that that is questioning, they may not realize, they'll might, their answer might reveal a lot. Because when people are questioned in a way like, I don't understand, explain this to me, they have to then figure out how to, 
hide their racism or whatever the issue or homophobia. Like, they're going to have to hide that right. while responding to you. So they respond to you like something out the back that's out that's crazy. You're going to just be like, well, which source are you citing on that? Where did you read that from? Such if it's like a history really question. Then you could go online, grab something that, you know, clearly supports your point of view. And then if they say, well, that source isn't legitimate, it's left-wing propaganda, and I'm like, well, okay, thanks for revealing your cards there. Because, like, one time I linked an article to from Vox, and I'm like, they're like, Vox is biased. I'm like, yeah. according to who? Somebody reads, like, Newsmax every day? Like, okay. Like, if they're rejecting scholarly articles and stuff, it's like, oh, because you want... <laughs> It's a political thing. That's what the other team do. People don't realize when they say right. they don't want politics in their fandom, what they really are saying is, I don't want people who disagree with me in my fandom. <laughs> or, I don't want progressive or, you know, pro-social justice views in my fandom. There's a lot more I could say about this topic, but I know you're right. running out of time on Zoom since you've... I, I know. This is such a... This is such a amazing topic and i really wish we had more time um i'm still recording on my side it hasn't cut off yet thank goodness um so it's kind of like when you when you call out sexism you you call them out you you ask in like the most innocent terms what do you mean by that yeah type of thing that's one Um, very common tactic if you don't want to go out there full frontal because the thing is sometimes Sometimes it may not be necessary. Now, other times you don't know who the person is. You don't know how they're going to react. Um, also, it educating people takes up a lot of your own mental bandwidth. So sometimes you don't want to deal with that. But in terms of structurally, like if you are a jazz member listening to this, what you should be doing with these things is, I know I'm not. I do not recall the email that right off the top of my head right now that you should be emailing to support the DEI community. I forgot the name. I don't want to quote the wrong email, so probably link it as a note. Yeah, I think it's info at jasna.org. Yeah, and jedi at jasna.org. If you're writing, writing those emails to support the committee that is existing still, in if you're in, if you're in a you know smaller group, ask your leaders. Hey, are you looking at speakers of color for your future events? Like, look at the programming. Like, who's being offered as speakers? Like, are you only l- inviting the same white academics? Are there people who you could be spotlighting? Are there people who are being? And it's look at those things. Like, hey, who in our own community? are we ignoring because we're so caught up in ourselves? That's another thing too. It's like a lot of these smaller jazz and region groups are, they're not recruiting from within their own community. Like they're not going, and part of the problem is that there's this perception that the programming is very stilted toward white academia and not what younger fans or fans of color would find interesting or queer fans would find interesting that's the thing it's like what are you have to look at what's missing like who in your community or who who you know is missing from those conversations and why because there are folks around the fandom who are you know who are can be 
hired to talk to your talk to your events or you know podcasts that other people and other blogs you should be reading and you know subscribing and stuff and that sort of that's that's the more and if you're able to in that sense that's the more helpful the email is just the first step it's like you if you're at a meeting like and people are talking about things a certain way like why you know questioning those things and questioning people who make decisions in your groups because trust me the your people of the poc in this community we know some of who the problem people are we don't want to we what we want is accountability for we're not trying to burn anybody on fire we just want people to change their behavior in the past in a more and then turn themselves around and do a more productive thing we're not trying to this whole cancel culture notion is not kind of mm-hmm. what people are asking for. It's kind of a misconception. It's like we want accountability. We don't want people to just hide and keep on doing the same thing. Like we want people to change positively. Like if you make these changes that people are suggesting, suggesting that Jedi commu- com- committee be a very good thing. Like you'll they'll get more members. I've been talking with Amanda Roy Prescott. Thank you so much for taking the time out. I really do appreciate it. And I hope that you'll come back. Welcome back, everyone. I hope you enjoyed that discussion with Amanda Ray Prescott as much as I did. She has such a cool job and she's definitely not afraid to point out problems in the world. Well, uh, we had a great time talking and we actually talked off the air for about two hours you can follow Amanda Ray on Twitter at Amanda R. Prescott, and I hope she comes back again soon. Now back to the books. When last we saw Eleanor and Marianne, they were having a terrible night at the Middleton's party. We got to know Sir John and Lady Middleton better. We met Sir John's best friend, who, as the narrator said, seems no more adapted by resemblance of manner to be his friend than Lady Middleton was to be his wife. They also met Lady M's mother, and we'll begin Chapter 8 with a description of Mrs. Jennings. Mrs. Jennings was a widow with an ample jointure. She had only two daughters, both of whom she had lived to see respectably married, and she had now therefore nothing to do but marry all the rest of the world. In the promotion of this object, she was zealously active as far as her ability reached and missed no opportunity of projecting weddings among all the young people of her acquaintance. She was remarkably quick on the discovery of attachments and had enjoyed the advantage of raising the blushes and the vanity of many a young lady by insinuations of her power over such a young man. And this kind of discernment enabled her soon after her arrival at Barton decisively to an pronounce that Colonel Brandon was very much in love with Marianne Dashwood. So unlike Mrs. Dashwood, who received very little when her husband died, Mrs. Jennings had an ample jointure. Now, a jointure is an annual payment made to a widow by her husband's estate. Poor Mrs. D gets hardly anything from her husband's estate, which is why the Dashwoods are in this situation in the first place. So Mrs. J is pretty well off, and that means she has plenty of time to visit her married daughter and tease her teenage guests. So at this point, the Dashwoods and Middletons have had at least two dinners together now, 
and Mrs. Jennings and Colonel Brandon have been a part of both. And during these dinners, Mrs. Jennings noticed something. Colonel Brandon is hot for Marianne Dashwood. She rather suspected it to be so on the very first evening of their being together from his listening so attentively when she sang to them. And when the visit was returned by the Middletons dining at the cottage, the fact was ascertained by his listening to her again. It must be so. She was perfectly convinced of it. It would be an excellent match, for he was rich and she was handsome. Mrs. Jennings had been anxious to see Colonel Brandon well married ever since her connection with Sir John first brought him to her knowledge, and she was always anxious to get a good husband for every pretty girl. So in modern times, we are totally skeezed out by this. Colonel Brandon is 35, and he's checking out a 17-year-old. That's not okay. <sighs> okay, deep breaths, everyone. We need to remember that this story takes place in a very different time. This is not the 21st century. In the 1790s, it was totally fine for a single adult man to be attracted to a teenage girl. Ew. Ew, that's so... But just saying that gives me the shivers. But we need to get past it, at least for the sake of this story. For the sake of Jane, we have to get past this. And Mrs. Jennings doesn't think anything of this age difference, but she knows it bothers Marianne. So she has plenty of fun at both Marianne and Brandon's expense, and they both have such different reactions. It supplied her with endless jokes against them both. At the park, she laughed at the colonel and in the cottage at Marianne. Now, this doesn't bother Brandon much. He's as gloomy and taciturn as ever. But Marianne doesn't like this one bit. To the former, her raillery was probably, as far as it regarded only himself, perfectly indifferent. But to the latter, it was first incomprehensible, and when its object was understood, she hardly knew whether most to laugh at its absurdity or to censure its impertinence, for she considered it an unfeeling reaction on the colonel's advanced years and on his forlorn condition as an old bachelor. So Brandon apparently has no problems with this. He's indifferent to Mrs. Jennings' teasing. At least the narrator believes he is. But Marianne doesn't know how to take it. Should she tell Mrs. Jennings off for being impertinent? Should she laugh at the absurdity of an old man in love with her? And why would Mrs. Jennings be so cruel to, as to tease an old man about feeling things he's no longer able to? It's inconceivable. But Marianne here, she doesn't allow Brandon to feel emotions such as love because she thinks he's, as we say in Boston, wicked old. She's really settled into this belief since their first meeting. Remember what the narrator said about her thoughts at, at the attention he paid her piano playing at the end of chapter 7. His pleasure in music, although it mounted not to that ecstatic delight which alone could sympathize with her own, was estimable when contrasted against the horrible insensibility of the others. And she was reasonable enough to allow that a man of five and thirty might well have outlived all acuteness of feeling and every exquisite power of enjoyment. She was perfectly disposed to make every allowance for the colonel's advanced state of life which humanity required. As far as Marianne is concerned, Brandon's an old man who can no longer feel feelings. He's insensible to all the sensibilities that she worships. It's like a cult for her, like a flower that withers 
as the plant ages, once you cross that fine line from youth to age, life ceases to have any of that kind of meaning that Marianne desires. It stops being about action and desire and is simply about waiting for death. Even if you're only a 35-year-old bachelor, that's kind of depressing. So I came across an article in The Atlantic while researching this episode, and it talked about Marianne's ideas of youth and beauty, and I really think it's pertinent to our discussion today. Marianne spends much of the book believing that the lives of the older people around her are frozen in place. Their circumstances set some time in their youth, because as several characters intimate, little but death can change a person's marital circumstances after a wedding and none of the main characters of the novel are newlyweds. The years after marriage come to seem to Marianne like a sort of afterlife, and spinsterdom or bachelorhood a sort of purgatory. Children may be born, allowing for more vicarious thrills after the marriage vows are spoken, she suggests, but one ceases to mark milestones of one's own. So Marianne displays all these ideas about hope, love and life that she believes are absolute and well there's no room for gray in Marianne's bright world it's as if to her marriage is a kind of death of the self and spinsterhood or bachelordom is a fate worse than death so if she must be married someday she is going to marry someone who views life as a wonder someone who feels the same passions that she does she wants a man of feeling at least for as long as either of them are able to feel now mrs d like me doesn't think that a man five years younger than her is an old bachelor and we both know that life doesn't end at 35 or 40 maybe 50 but when you're or when you marry or when you have children, aging millennials like us know that it ain't over yet. Mrs. Dashwood could not think a man five years younger than herself so exceedingly ancient as he appeared to the youthful fancy of her daughter, ventured to clear Mrs. Jennings from the probability of wishing to throw ridicule on his age. But Marianne is still focused on the very idea of his infatuation. But at least, Mama, You cannot deny the absurdity of the accusation, though you may not think it intentionally ill-natured. Colonel Brandon is certainly younger than Mrs. Jennings, but he is old enough to be my father, and if he were ever animated enough to be in love, must have long outlived every sensation of the kind. It is too ridiculous. When is a man to be safe from such wit if age and infirmity will not protect him? Infirmity, said Eleanor. Do you call Colonel Brandon infirm? I can easily suppose that his age may appear much greater to you than to my mother, but you can hardly deceive yourself as to his having the use of his limbs. Did you not hear him complaining of the rheumatism, and is not that the commonest infirmity of declining life? My dearest child, said her mother laughing, at this rate you must be in continual terror of my decay. And it must seem to you a miracle that my life has been extended to the advanced age of 40. Mama, you are not doing me justice. I know very well that Colonel Brandon is not old enough to make his friends yet apprehensive of losing him in the course of nature. He may live 20 years longer, but 35 has nothing to do with matrimony. 
Okay, so Marianne claims to have a reason for calling Colonel Brandon old. Apparently, he's got rheumatism. And complaining about aches and pains, of course, makes you an old man in the eyes of a 17-year-old. Which means that I've been old since I was 12, but that's a different story. Eleanor now has to voice her very sensible thoughts. Perhaps, said Eleanor, 35 and 17 had better not have anything to do with matrimony together. But if there should by any chance happen to be a woman who was single at seven and twenty, I should not think Colonel Brandon's being thirty-five any objection to his marrying her. All right, so Eleanor's like, okay, maybe thirty-five and seventeen is too wide an age gap, but a single woman only ten years older than Marion very likely wouldn't turn up her nose at the proposal by a thirty-five-year-old man. Marion's got a response for that. A woman of seven and twenty, said Marianne, after pausing a moment, can never hope to feel or inspire affection again, and if her home be uncomfortable, or her fortune small, I can suppose that she might bring herself to submit to the offices of a nurse, for the sake of the provision and the security of a wife, and his marrying such a woman, therefore, there would be nothing unsuitable. It would be a compact of convenience." and the world would be satisfied. In my eyes, it would be no marriage at all, but that would be nothing. To me, it would only seem a commercial exchange in which each wished to be benefited at the expense of the other. That's really harsh. It would be impossible, I know, replied Eleanor, to convince you that a woman of seven and twenty could feel for a man of thirty-five anything near enough to love to make him a desirable companion to her. But I must object to your dooming Colonel Brandon and his wife to the constant confinement of a sick chamber merely because he chanced to complain yesterday, a very cold, damp day, of a slight rheumatic feeling in one of his shoulders. But he talked a flannel waistcoat, said Marianne, and with me a flannel waistcoat is invariably connected with aches, cramps, rheumatisms, and every species of ailment that can afflict the old and the feeble. Had he been only in a violent fever, you would not have despised him half so much. Confess, Marianne, is not there something interesting to you in the flushed cheek, hollow eye, and quick pulse of a fever? Oh, so Marianne has a really harsh thoughts on marriage. It makes me wonder what her own parents' marriage was like. We don't know anything about it. We're told that they lived a very happy life with old man Dashwood. We can assume it was happy, but of course, the past two years, her mother was probably first nursing Uncle Dashwood and then her husband, but they were older. Uncle Dashwood was anyways, and Henry, the girl's father, was significantly older than his wife. Since John is about 30 at the present, that puts Henry at at least 50 and likely older than that. So maybe Marion is thinking about the age difference in her own parents. Or how her father got sick when his daughters were only teenagers and her mother had to nurse him before he died. Maybe she's thinking about the difficulties of an even younger widow would be in having to care for children after her much older husband dies. In a commercial exchange, that's really cold. At the same time, this is how people contracted weddings at this time. People usually, well, the upper classes and the middle class did not usually marry for love. It was a contract. It was an exchange of goods and services. 
I will marry this man and he will provide me with a home and in exchange I will give him children. That was what it was. It was a commercial exchange. It was a benefit at the expense of the other. Marianne isn't wrong here. It's a very cold, cynical way of thinking for such a romantic girl. But she's not wrong. And maybe Marianne is using flannel waistcoats and aches and cramps as an excuse to avoid talking about something that would be too painful for all of them. But then again, maybe Marianne is using flannel waistcoats, aches and cramps as an excuse to avoid talking about something that would be too painful for all of them. Maybe she isn't as shallow as this conversation makes her sound. Perhaps she has real and legitimate concerns about marrying a much older man. But she's too worried about the feelings of her family to bring them up after mourning her father for the past seven months. And of course, Eleanor teases Marianne's response, saying that if he was complaining of fevers rather than chills and stiffness, she'd like him much more and be far more compassionate. And this is one of Eleanor's gentle digs at Marianne's adherence to this cult of sensibility. Novels of sensibility were fascinated with acute illness and apparently equated illness uh, with a spiritual quality. Well, stiff shoulders are too physical for someone who is interested in that spiritual quality of sensibility. Eleanor now leaves the room after this conversation and Marianne changes the subject from her own love life to her sister's. Mama, said Marianne, I have an alarm on the subject of illness which I cannot conceal to you. I am sure Edward Ferris is not well. We have now been here almost a fortnight, and yet he does not come. Nothing but real indisposition could occasion this extraordinary delay. What else can detain him at Norland? Had you any idea of his coming so soon, said Mrs. Dashwood? I had none. On the contrary, if I have felt any anxiety at all on the subject... It has been in recollecting that he sometimes showed a want of pleasure and readiness in accepting my invitation when I talked to him of coming to Barton. Does Eleanor expect him already? I have never mentioned it to her, but of course she must. I rather think you are mistaken, for when I was talking to her yesterday of getting a new grate for the spare bedroom, she observed that there was no immediate hurry for it, as it was not likely that the room would be wanted for some time. How strange it is! What can be the meaning of it? But the whole of their behavior to each other has been unaccountable. How cold, how composed they were at their last adieus! How languid their conversation the last evening of their being together! In Edward's farewell, there was no distinction between Eleanor and me. It was the good wishes of an affectionate brother to both. Twice did I leave them purposely together in the course of the last morning, and each time did he most unaccountably follow me out of the room. And Eleanor, in quitting Norland and Edward, cried not as I did. Even now her self-command is invariable. When is she dejected or melancholy? When does she try to avoid society or appear restless and dissatisfied with it? So Marion is far more worried about Edward Ferris than she is about her own love life. She thinks he's sick. Why else is he not visiting them? She can't conceive of any other reason for him not immediately rushing to Devonshire to visit Eleanor. Maybe this is why she's so focused on Brandon's health. She's equating Brandon's stiffness and complaints with Edward's no-showing. 
If Brandon complains about a cold, damp day, then Edward must be terribly ill to not visit Eleanor. But Mrs. D points out that he didn't seem all that excited about visiting when she invited him, very purposely in front of his sister, and so she doesn't expect him to visit soon, and she points out that Eleanor doesn't even expect him to visit. And Marianne, again, she's just awed by her sister's self-command. She always behaves so properly and doesn't show anxiety or distress over losing Edward. She is in control all the time. And Marianne can't understand how she does it. And I can't understand how she does it either. Marianne cried over a tree. And, well, I don't blame her for that. I mean, geez, Eleanor, have some emotions. You're going to get a tumor or an ulcer or something. And remember Marianne's words here. When is she dejected or melancholy? When does she try to avoid society or appear restless and dissatisfied with it? Remember those words. Because in the future, we're going to see her play out all of those emotions that she wishes to see Eleanor express. Well, this has been quite an episode. That's the end of today's chapter. I hope that you enjoyed our special episode as much as I did. Many thanks to Amanda Ray Prescott for taking the time out of her busy schedule to visit with me. And thank you so much for listening. Today's episode was written by me, Casey Meserve, and produced by my brother, Jeremy Meserve. If you like the show, you can leave a review on Apple Podcasts. It really helps me out. You can join the conversation with me on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook or write to me at entsandsensibility at gmail.com. Thanks again, and I hope you'll visit again soon. Mm-hmm.